have to organize well enough to know exactly how you're going to function, who's going to make what decisions and what instances, what sorts of policies, as you're pointing out, you're going to have in place to safeguard your organization because it's trying to be a nonprofit. Welcome to the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good, too. I've been uh, just toiling away, working, living life, but also kind of looking forward to summer and getting to cooler climbs and enjoying mountain air and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. So working, but also looking forward to those things. Absolutely. I am right there with you. Yeah. Getting it's starting to warm up. We got to get out. That means we got to get out fast. (laughs) Get out for a while. (laughs) We got the vaccines, right? So now we're we're Mm -hmm. free to go. We can actually see the world again. It's it's good. Yeah, that is a good thing. I got my second round today. So far, so good. I I feel pretty good. Good. Yeah. Not deathly ill. (laughs) <laughs> arms not sore yet <laughs> it's not too bad actually I've, yeah i've had much worse vaccination shots where my arm was just like dead for several days but it's only mildly uh painful right now so i'll take it <laughs> good good yeah fingers crossed you're good to go and then then we could all go back to you know licking handrails all that good <laughs> stuff in the olden days <laughs> absolutely you know me it's uh, it's a hobby of mine. Yeah, you know, I was, yeah. I was telling my friend the other day, you know, like the movie Elf, where he takes all the gum that's off the street and you know just start tasting it. Well, I guess if people got vaccines now. Go ahead, free candy, right? Just, let's Absolutely. test them out. <laughs> I see no reason not to do that. So. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I cannot encourage people strongly enough to do that. That sounds like a fantastic idea. <laughs> well, speaking of doing um, smart things. I thought that we could address an issue that comes up with quite a bit of frequency, actually, among our clients. Uh, we've we've talked in several different episodes about charitable planning and charitable giving, but I feel like we've sort of danced around the issue of forming a charity because we have quite a few clients who want to form their own charities. So I thought maybe we could we could talk about that from a kind of nuts and bolts process perspective, how is it done? And obviously, if we're going to have that conversation, then there's nobody better to bring in than our good friend, Deborah Plum. Uh, Deborah, as many people may remember, is uh, an attorney in our law firm. Deborah uh, works with us. Uh, She's a trust and states and tax practitioner and the kind of person who knows a lot about this topic. So Deborah, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> you weren't scared off, so we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't frighten you off. That's our usual goal when we have anybody on the podcast is just let's just not frighten them off forever. No, wasn't scared. Not yet. As much Good. as I, I don't always love hearing the sound of my voice on a recording, <laughs> I was very excited to join, especially for this particular topic, since it combines my work and my side passions about nonprofits. So it's, I'm very excited to talk to you guys about it, especially the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. Well, for a little bit of flavor, then why don't you give us just a little bit of at least a high level odor, overview of your uh, your side gig? Yeah, the side gig. I actually run my own small nonprofit. I do have a co-founder, Theo Windish, who's in uh, Pennsylvania. But we run a small nonprofit, just two years old, uh, that helps veterans and their family members in Tucson, actually in Arizona generally, um, with the reintegration process. So we work mostly with Mustangs, wild horses, but also with tamed horses. And we do a form of equine therapy That's sort of a mix of groundwork, as they call it. So I won't get into technical words about that, but it's not riding. It's really just about communication skills from the ground. And then also just some good fun riding horses and hanging out as a family in a great environment. And we run one program a year for now and uh, we're growing slowly. Yeah, it's really cool. Very, very interesting program. We'll put the link um, to your nonprofit in the show notes, too, so people can can check it out, peruse the website see what it is that you guys are up to because it's very, very neat. So 
All right, that's really, really good. So with that with that background, then I guess the the assumption or the presumption for this conversation is a hypothetical person is convinced that they are going to do what Deborah did and form their own nonprofit. So the question then becomes, then what do you do? So I guess I'll uh, start with you, Rachel, with that question. If somebody asks you, what do I do? I need to form a nonprofit. That's a good question. And it comes with a lot of steps, basically, at that point. So my first question back to them is, what are you going to do? Like, let's really pinpoint your mission. Let's really pinpoint exactly what your organization is going to do. Usually when a client comes to us and they say they want to start a nonprofit, you know, they've got this wonderful idea and it's great. They've been inspired by something, but that's where we're at. We're at the big idea. We need to now get it into the funnel and really kind of drill down exactly what your organization is going to do, who's going to be a part of it, who's going to be running it, all of the little nitty gritty. Once you kind of get those thoughts going, you get that conversation, then it's really drilling down, I think, who's going to be involved. So one of the first questions I always ask is who is going to be, who are going to be your directors, your board of directors on your nonprofit? These could be friends, these could be colleagues, um, it, it could be a bunch of different people. And it's really good to have a diverse group of people. Um, I sit on the board of a nonprofit here in town and it's tons of different people. You've got me as a lawyer, you've got doctors, you've got people who are teachers, volunteers, accountants. And that's really good to have because you want all the different perspectives. So I'm gonna talk through with the client about who exactly is going to be on the board of directors? How many directors do you want sitting on your board? Because that's going to start um, letting me know how I'm going to draft your documents. Related to that question then is who's going to be your officers? So you've got your board of directors and your board and a nonprofit. They're the ones that are really making the, the big decisions on how your nonprofit is uh going towards in the future. But your officers are the ones, especially like your president, if you've got a CEO, if you've got an executive director, they're the ones who are really doing the day-to-day -day administrative tasks. And so it's really good to know who are those people going to be. Your officers can be members of your board. They don't have to be members of your board. It's really up to you. Again, we just need to know that for how we're going to draft your documents. So start getting all of those juices flowing and thinking about who are those people going to be in the, the realm of what you're doing with your nonprofit. Really, once we have all of that now going, and let's say the clients got it pinpointed down, they, they knew all of this from the beginning. They didn't have the big idea. They're already funneled down to the, the small points. Then what we need to do is really start working on the documents. So the first step that I'm going to do is help them get their nonprofit incorporated in whatever state that they want to. It is important to note, as we note a lot on this podcast, every state law is different, okay? We are Arizona attorneys, Arizona and Colorado for Brent, and we, we, you have to look to specific state law because every state's gonna be a little bit different. So here in Arizona, let's just say we're, we're forming a, a nonprofit in Tucson, just like Deborah has, then what we're going to do first is prepare the documents that we need to incorporate your nonprofit here. If you'd like, we can reserve your name. You can do that through the Arizona Corporation Commission. Sometimes if you've got a really good name and you're really excited, you don't want anyone else to take it, you can reserve that name. It's quick and easy. Don't have to if you don't want to. Just fingers crossed that name's still going to be available because you can't pick a name that someone else has. Um, from there, you're going to draft your articles of incorporation. Those are just kind of your, your basic information on, you know, who are the board of directors of your nonprofit, how it's managed, things like that. We're going to draft some bylaws that gets a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the day to day management of the nonprofit. Those are kind of your your mandatory required documents. Your articles are going to be filed with the Corporation Commission. And then from there, though, I'm also going to recommend some additional documents. And these are good to have documents. This is going to be uh, a whistleblower policy. You know, in today's world, that's a really big issue we've seen come up in a lot of corporations. So I'm going to uh, suggest a whistleblower policy. I'm also going to suggest a document retention policy just because you want that, right? We all don't want to be holding on to paper and emails and files. You should have those policies in place so you know when you could purge out some information. Also going to recommend that you have a conflict of interest policy. This is going to be huge for your board of directors. 
you want to make sure that none of your board members or an officer has a conflict that's going to clash with the your nonprofit. And so it's good to have this policy in place in case that does happen. And then what are the steps that you have to take afterwards? So those are your documents. I know I've just been rambling, but basically we're going to prepare all of those documents first. Um, again, I know you've had this beautiful big idea, but let's get all this done. Once we've got you incorporated, then either your organization, your board is going to meet together actually in person, or if you're not meeting in person, say in today's world, we're all virtual, then we can do a consent in lieu of a meeting where um, everyone, you know, we're going over that we're adopting the articles, we're going over that we're adopting the bylaws, here we're electing our officers, we're electing our board members, here we go, we're going to put that in one document, it's basically like the minutes of a meeting if you actually had a meeting in person, and that's just for good record keeping. Just like any other corporation, if we're like a, an actual for-profit corporation, you want minutes of meetings, it's just good to have for record keeping for anything in the future. So once you've basically got all of that and you've actually, you know, you've submitted the stuff, you filed the articles with your, your state corporation commission or your secretary of state office, wherever it may be, and it's approved, then you're finally a nonprofit. So like I said at the beginning, it's a lot of steps to get there, but that's just the initial stage of forming it, getting it on the books of whatever state that you're under. So then you could take the next step and trying to get it to be an actual tax-exempt 501c3 organization. Yeah, so maybe to break that down just a little bit, it's, uh, first of all, uh, the client shares with you a great idea that they have. They're very excited about it. After you've heard about it, you're probably very excited about it because usually these are really great kind of tug at the heartstrings, like great things that people are wanting to do. And then you ruin it as a lawyer by throwing a bunch of paperwork at them and really boring details uh, that they have to start thinking through that they weren't thinking through before you uh, had that conversation, but now it's just sort of got their head spinning because it's so much stuff. But it is, you know, it is so important for them to think about upfront how the organization is going to function. And, and there's a lot of the functionality of the organization that's important because ultimately the IRS is going to be very interested in it when you try to file your application for tax exemption to become a quote you know so-called 501c3 which we'll get into in just a bit but the you know the irs is going to be interested in that but also just on a sort of day-to-day -day nuts and bolts mundane level you have to know you have to organize well enough to know exactly how you're going to function who's going to make what decisions and in what instances what sorts of policies as you're pointing out you're going to have in place to safeguard your organization because it's trying to be a nonprofit. Therefore, it has strict rules that it has to play by that the IRS has created and state law creates. And you want to play by all of those state rules. Once you form the organization, typically state law says you as a director or an officer have a duty to the organization. So you want to make sure those duties and everybody's roles are really, really clear. So all that boring stuff that the lawyers make clients do that uh, basically ruin all of the excitement, uh, throw cold water on everything. All of it really does matter uh, and it is really important to do. I wanna point out one additional thing. And so we've been talking about this or you've sort of framed this, I think quite rightly in terms of forming uh, a nonprofit corporation, okay? At least in my experience, that's by far the most common way to do it. You don't necessarily have to use a corporation to have a nonprofit. The alternative would be to form a trust and the trust is is set up to be the entity, so to speak, that is the nonprofit entity. It's just not quite as common to do it that way. Much more commonly, you see nonprofit corporations. The typical reason that I have heard and the typical reason that I have used in my practice for doing it that way is that, at least in our state, we have a statute or a set of statutes that govern nonprofit corporations. But we do not have a set of statutes that govern specifically nonprofit trusts. We have statutes that cover trusts generally, and there's like one or two sections in there about charitable trusts, but there isn't like a whole separate set of statutes that govern nonprofit or charitable trusts, at least in our state. And so I've always been inclined and I've always heard it explained to me to be inclined to use nonprofit corporation for that purpose. Okay, so let's assume then that you have formed your entity now you want to become a quote unquote uh, 501c3. 
then what do you have to do? And, and uh, Deborah, since you've been through this process, maybe you're the one to kind of explain it to us. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the next step really is is the 1023, the Form 1023, which everyone in the nonprofit sector knows. It's sort of this dreaded application that uh, seems like a behemoth or a beast that you have to file. And if you think the corporate documents didn't beat your dream out of you, this document certainly can. So it's um, it, it's it's a fun one. It's about 40 pages long and it's got all kinds of questions and nitty gritty. And I, I want to say before starting to sort of go through some of the basics of it, I think it's really important. Some of the things that Rachel mentioned that a lot of the a lot of the documents, if it's the articles of incorporation, the bylaws, the conflicts of interest policy, all of those are extremely important for your application to the IRS, not just having them, but what they say, because the IRS is going to start asking questions that relate to conflicts of interest, such as one question on the form that is, are family members of yours or people who are affiliates receiving goods and services from your organization or getting paid? So those are questions that you should already have an answer to if you've done a conflicts of interest policy before you even get to the 1023. So I think that base is really important. In addition, the IRS requires that articles of incorporation include the charitable mission. The IRS does allow you to have a very broad charitable mission. So if you don't have a narrowed down one, you can simply say that you are organized exclusively for charitable, religious, educational, and scientific purposes. But it's important to note that that's, that's a requirement. That's not something you can just leave out of your articles of incorporation and deal with later. Similarly, the IRS has a lot of questions about what happens if an organization dissolves. Well, really one key question. And one of the most important things is that you have to state in either your articles of incorporation or your bylaws that the, upon dissolution, the assets are distributed to an organization with a similar mission. So I only point those things out to just bring home that although they are two separate parts of the process, they're very much intertwined. Beyond that, as far as the 1023, this is this is really when all of those big ideas and what you're going to do start to become extremely relevant because aside from the 40 pages of yes and no questions about whether or not your documents meet the requirements or who's getting paid or how much money you think you're going to raise or who your directors and officers are, you also have the opportunity to write a narrative. And the 1023, I should also start by saying as a threshold matter, there's the 1023 and then there's the 1023-EZ. Organizations that assume they will bring in less than $50,000, specifically in the first three years or on, on a yearly basis, can submit the EZ. Anything above that is the regular 1023. That used to be a huge difference. It used to be that you had an expedited review process. It was much shorter because it was online and not by mail. Now, some of the distinctions there are collapsed a bit. Every 1023 as of February 2021 is done online. And in an odd turn of events, the IRS is limiting the amount of information they want. So your narrative is subject to a 5,000 character, including spaces, limitation on what it is that you do or don't do, which is a real change from the 1023 that I submitted that almost invited and expected based on samples, a very lengthy narrative that went through every activity, every funding activity, every program, and had attachments of anything you had done before, marketing efforts. This is a much much more simplified in many ways process at this point. And so, especially with delays with the IRS, the turnaround time also is not much of a distinction. So if you even think that you'll reach 50,000 or get close to it, I don't see any reason to do the easy. I actually think the, the, the distinctions, again, have been collapsed. And as I've said to clients and actually lawyers who I worked with for my nonprofit to make sure that someone was guiding me, have said and recommended, and I, I really agree with this point, I don't, if you are at, at the threshold where you think you really want or have a goal to raise more than $50,000, which hopefully many of us do when we start it, there's really no reason to avoid filling out the 1023. All that happens is the full 1023 because there's no penalty. You know, if you if you don't make as much money or you make less money or more money, there's no distinction. There's no penalty. You can fill out either one. It's just about the good faith assumption of what you'll make. And a lot of these questions and opportunities to write a narrative, though shorter now, it's helpful down the line. So I actually think I would always recommend to some extent filling out the full version. But 
That being said, the full version is a lengthy 40-page document, as I mentioned, with lots of questions about whether or not your organization will be soliciting donations from, from individuals, from government grants, whether or not you will be a grant-making entity, whether or not you will also be giving money to others. That's a, that's a big distinction. And it also asks questions about your budget. So you have to fill out a whole three-year projection usually about three years where you say where your income is going to be coming from if it's all fundraising if there's charge if there are charges that people have to pay for your services so it is quite a lengthy process and i definitely recommend even as someone who has done it before always having someone else or another professional just look it over because the details really are quite extensive i would also say that this application process although it's great that there's a character limit in some ways because people like to write less or maybe don't know really what they want to say or haven't done anything yet, I wouldn't be shy if I was submitting an application again about going beyond that limit and submitting an attachment. I, 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 don't, I don't foresee there being any issue with that. And I do foresee potential issues down the line with applications as they get maybe backlogged a bit more and there's more questions. Well, why, why did you put this information in or what exactly you're going to do for fundraising? I'm actually a little bit concerned about this change in terms of what we're going to see as far as auditing and questions later on when somehow these applications don't have quite the, the material or the extensive material that they once had. That's just my personal opinion. But in terms of the 1023, it's, uh, I mean, we can tell me if you'd like to go over any of the additional questions or if there's a specific question you want to discuss. I think the key is really, again, the requirements that certain clauses be included in your documents, that you have a budget somewhat ready to, to prepare and put together, and that you also have a narrative of some sort that explains your activities. I think those are the key key points of the application. Yeah, that's, that's I think that's really helpful. And maybe to to try to frame it and then we can talk in a little bit more detail is to point out that under the federal tax laws the the requirements the minimum tests requirements to be a nonprofit entity or a, a tax exempt entity under 501c3 is that first of all you have to be organized for a charitable purpose and then second of all you have to be operated under that or to to meet that charitable purpose. And so the 1023 is trying to flesh out within, I mean, those are very broad principles. That's some more detail in there. Um, we don't have to bore people with, but the 1023 is really trying to flesh out both of those issues. Are you organized for a charitable purpose properly under the rules? And then are you going to be operated for a charitable purpose um, after your application is submitted? Then one of the things that people ask oftentimes, or they're very interested in oftentimes is that sometimes before they have submitted their application and gotten back their tax exempt status, meaning they got back a determination letter, a favorable determination letter from the IRS, sometimes they already have donations lined up or they're they're ready to contribute money. Well, once you once you submit the application, when it is approved, which will be sometime in the future and could be many months into the future, uh, when it when your nonprofit status is approved, it does relate back. Okay, so it relates back in time. So you don't have to worry about other than getting a negative uh, response on your determination letter and being denied tax exempt status. I mean, if you really if you meet the rules, you don't have to be terribly worried that once you receive contributions, that those contributions are not going to be tax exempt to you when you receive them as an organization or they're not going to be deductible by your donors. And usually the donors want to deduct them and you definitely do not want to pick up that money as income at a corporate level. So. So those sort of, that sort of framework. So within that framework, then let's talk a little bit about on the organizational side, a little bit of this concept that uh, Rachel was describing of a diversity on your board. What are some of the issues in trying to pick the right mix of people on board? What are things that the IRS is looking for? Yeah, I think there's there the IRS is definitely looking for I would say on the board to make sure that you have people who represent different areas of expertise. It, it's a way in some ways of of showing that the public is behind it if you're dealing with a public charity that there there's not just you. It can be your friends and family. There's definitely an element of that. Don't don't shy away from it. That's fine. Um, but it is very good to have more than your friends and family on board because that will show a pool of representatives in a sense who are potential. They wouldn't necessarily be the donors, although many directors are. Boards of directors often are required to donate at certain stages. But it does indicate that there's support for the cause, which, again, you know, 
as much as there's a broad concept of what a 501c3 is, there is still a requirement that you are really meeting a need and serving a pool of people or a, a specific area that within your community that really requires support. At least that's that's the goal that they present to they present you with showing. And so your board really has to show that there is a need. There's a community of people behind this that that are saying, yes, there's a need. And we are diverse enough to show that that need is going to take into consideration all kinds of questions, whether it's proper operation of the organization, fiscal responsibility, conflicts of interest. Again, you know, if everyone is the same last name, there can be questions about how that is going to, to look in terms of a conflicted decision-making process. So, you know, as much as the IRS is interested in your mission and in what it, what need you're filling or sort of what what services you're providing that fulfill a need. They're also looking to show for you to show that there is this communal support and that there is a diversity again in terms of of the roles that people will play. I think another thing that comes up especially if you are going to be making donations to other organizations, it's interest it's important to have board members who have experience in doing that as well. I think that's very helpful. Um, I think that's something that shows that you've taken this in, the issue of giving out money beyond receiving money very, very seriously, and that people understand what that, what that threshold or what that application process from you would look like. I think also, again, to go back to the shift in the 1023, it used to be that you actually were expected to send a bio of all of your board members speaking to that point, um, it wasn't required, it wasn't a question necessarily, but every sample that I had seen before submitting my application and actually a prior nonprofit that I worked with and helped them start, the board members were all listed, even if it was just three and their bios were sent in. And now because of the character limit, there's really no place to do that. But I actually would encourage people to still do that if they're applying and submitting a 1023. You know, there's a, as I said, there are questions on the 1023 that ask about family members and their links to your organization. And I think when you just answer no, no one is receiving those goods and services who's an affiliate or who's a board member, that's great. But you can also show that by writing out the list of your board members and your officers. And especially if you're already considering paying people, I think, I think in this case, less maybe is not more um, to show that that the way that you organized your organization took into account what you're doing, which effectively, without getting into a policy standpoint on this, you are using taxpayer dollars for a cause that you have decided is truly valuable. And so there is an element of respect for those those people who are supporting you and showing that you're taking it seriously. Yeah. So having a board of one person, probably not going to cut it. Having a board of two people, also probably not going to cut it. Having a board of three people might cut it if they're all unrelated, but if they're all related to each other, uh, that also might not cut it. It's going to raise issues with the IRS. This, it's this. Uh, the board is, aside from being tasked with with running the organization from a state law perspective, I think the IRS kind of looks to the board as the entity that will put checks and balances on the operational side to make sure that the organization actually operates for charitable purposes and not for private purposes, which is the the big, big, big no-no that the IRS is trying to avoid. Okay, what about this question? Because I get this one all the time. Can we pay ourselves? If we're on the board, we generally, me, my family, my friends, for serving on the board, can we get paid? Boards of directors are not paid positions. It's just a big no-no. Um, you you can be an office, an officer, I should back up, can be paid. That's a huge distinction. Officers are treated as a type of employee can be, they don't have to be. That's another thing. And I would also say that in my experience, especially with startup smaller nonprofits, because of the overlap between the board and officer positions, that often is just a natural occurrence. I would highly recommend not even considering trying to pay someone for their officer position while they are also a board of on the board of directors. That would be that would raise a lot of red flags. And one of the most important things to think about when you're paying anyone who has been involved in the foundation of the organization or who has some other interest, you know, are they getting paid because their other for-profit business is going to benefit? These are all the the checks and balances and conflicts of interest that come up. We actually experienced it for a real personal example in our very small nonprofit. We started with three board, boards of director members. That was we knew we would add more. 
we work with a local horse trainer here. He's incredible. And his wife wants to be on our board and is now on our board. But to do that, because the arrangement with the Mustang trainer was a paid one, we had to ensure that our conflicts of interest policy was really, really paid attention to and drafted correctly. And that we each time we engage with him, we make sure to leave his spouse out of the decision making process and we get good comps. So I think it's really something that even on the smallest level, it can come up. You know, sometimes people think conflicts of interest policies, payments, it's not a big deal when you're talking about a small nonprofit. And actually, I would say the opposite. I think when small nonprofits don't take these things into consideration from the start, they can really get themselves into some pretty ugly situations. And, you know, your conflicts of interest policy will come up in filing your 990. So your annual reporting requirement as a nonprofit with the IRS is the 990. There is in true IRS fashion, the easy slash postcard 990 if you are under $50,000 in revenue. But if you are above it, it's a much lengthier form. And in that lengthier form, there is there are direct questions about your conflict of interest policy and whether or not there were transactions that you engaged in that would have brought this up. So and even if you think you're going to be under the $50,000 threshold for a while, I, I see no reason not to create good habits from the beginning. Because even if you are under that amount, it's an amount that was selected. It, it is beneficial for smaller nonprofits that can't hire an accountant. I understand that, of course. But I do think that, again, you're talking about taxpayer dollars and the public supporting you. And, and there's an element of, again, respecting that. So I think to Brent's point, to circle it back, no, directors don't get paid. That's a big no-no. Officers can, but you have to be cautious about, about who those officers are and ensure that the payments are not in any way seen as some kind of personal benefit to that individual. Yeah, they've got to be re- quote-unquote reasonable. And whatever what that is, is a little harder to determine, but it gets back to something that you mentioned, Deborah, I think, which is if you're going to be paying salaries to officers or you're going to be paying sort of an insider or family member of an insider for services or products that they're providing to the nonprofit, you actually need to first off, first of all, screen out the interested parties from that decision-making process. And second of all, you actually need to price out the price of doing it and make sure that what you're getting is a, is fair market value or cheaper. As I mentioned, there's a very strong policy against allowing nonprofit funds to be used to benefit people privately. And the IRS doesn't view it as a private benefit if it is being paid at fair market value for goods and services. So that's not something that like somebody is being enriched by necessarily, or it's not a windfall to them. But if you're getting paid more than fair market value, or you're getting paid money that you really didn't earn because you didn't put in the services or or sell the goods that are worth the money that you're receiving, then you're basically getting a windfall off of non-taxed funds. And the IRS does not like that at all. And to your point, Deborah, if you mess up with these rules, even if you're a small nonprofit, there are there are penalties like monetary penalties, but also ultimately the IRS can can uh, renounce your or terminate your tax exempt status. So now you're a corporation that doesn't pay any taxes becomes a corporation that definitely pays taxes. And that's a pretty harsh result. So, and all of your donors are not going to give you any more money. Let's just make that clear. Like donors are not going to be like, Oh, you have a for-profit organization now. Yes. We'll just keep giving you money. They're not going to do that. So it's a, it's a, it's a thicket. It's a, it's a slippery slope. You don't want to get going down that road. So yes, very, very important to get those conflicts of interest policies polished off very nicely as you and Rachel are both suggesting and then followed closely. One thing that I see too, in terms of just conflicts is to your point first, Brent, you know, you mentioned a board, the members of the board, they have fiduciary duties. They have fiduciary duty to the organization. That's a big thing you have to keep in mind. They have to do what's best for the organization. The board members and then, you know, whoever your offices are. So if you've got a treasurer, and let's say, you know, you're hoping to get an accountant or a CP, yeah, accountant, CPA, an, an investment advisor, someone who's really knows money to be the treasurer. Smart makes makes sense. A lot of a lot of nonprofits do that. But you have to make sure that that individual also doesn't have a conflict. And they may have a conflict, one, in 
you know, if they are, say, an investment advisor and they're like, oh, I can invest the money, well, are they taking a fee? That could be a potential conflict of interest. The other flip side of that that we see commonly is they have a personal conflict. So say they work at a bank and their bank's policy, their internal policy at work will not allow them to serve in that role. So when I talk to clients about setting up a nonprofit and who's gonna be your officers and who's gonna be on your board, that's one thing to keep in mind is kind of have a backup because a lot, especially people in the financial services industry, they may have a lot of conflicts that just preclude them from serving on the board or serving as, as an officer. They could serve as maybe an advisory role. You could put them on a committee, but actually serving as a board member or an officer, that might po pose a problem. You know, you bring up a good point also about what it means to serve on a board. I think as much as we've been talking about, it's great to have the diversity in terms of having a lawyer, an accountant. These are great people to have on boards. Not that I have anything against doctors or veterinarians. They can also be on boards. But for this example, what what I was going to suggest is that the lawyer on your board typically cannot practice law on behalf of your organization. The accountant on your board typically cannot be your accountant. So even if they are not conflicted out, as Rachel was mentioning, by their employer or the businesses that they work for, other clients, they really aren't supposed to be and, sh and really shouldn't be the people that then do the work for you because this brings up additional conflicts. If you are on a board and you are representing also the organization as their lawyer, are you conflicted because you're now having a dual hat situation where you're advising as a board and where donor dollars should go and how the program should work, but then who knows what legal question could come up that brings in a conflict as to how they would advise you as a lawyer and whether that's in the best interest for the organization from the agent board perspective. I, I, I don't think those are always so common and they're very hard to notice, but I think those conflicts are something to be aware of. Also for lawyers and their licenses, it's a terrible idea, so don't do that. And for accountants, I think there's some similar conflicts that can arise. So I think I think choosing your board members based on diversity of interest is great, but don't necessarily think that that person is going to be operating as your lawyer, accountant, insert whichever job they do during the day. Yeah, which is which is tough for the lawyers on the boards because uh, oftentimes, especially with small nonprofits, they a legal issue comes up, everybody looks at the lawyer and they they're like, well, what's the you know what's what should we do here? And you know the lawyers, I mean the lawyer is a board member, they have a right to have an opinion for the board, but. Uh, I think the lawyer just has to be mindful to remind everybody that they're really not acting as the lawyer. This is just sort of their personal opinion. It's not a legal opinion. But yeah, th there could be some interesting uh, ethical conundrums uh, in the operation of a nonprofit. All right, let me throw let me throw one uh, last uh, question that I get. This is this is a very very common scenario, and that is we want to pay money out to specific individuals. Okay. What do you tell the client? How do you handle that issue? If it's an issue at all, I guess I shouldn't I shouldn't presume the answer for you here. No, that can definitely be an issue. You know, there's there's a decision that you have to make when you start a nonprofit if you're, as I said, going to even be an organization that gives money to other organizations or to individuals. And you can. This is not a big no-no. You can decide that you want to be a grant-making organization. You just have to be very careful, again, and the theme of this podcast does really seem to be conflicts and making sure that everyone is you know, operating with the best interests of the organization and staying true to the mission. But those grants really have to be to benefit the individuals who your, who your mission is supposed to be supporting. So without dancing around the question, helping if you have an arts organization, let's just say this is a, comes up a lot in the arts. If you're art, an arts nonprofit and you want to give funds to artists who apply and your cousin is an artist, okay, they they can apply. That's not, a, that's not an issue from a technical standpoint, but just from the same as the conflicts of interest policy, you have to be careful that whoever is reviewing that application or making the decision is not conflicted. And again, it really should be your cousin who is an artist who does this all the time and not your cousin who is an artist on the side who you decide you really want to help them out. And yes, I have seen this. So this is why this example is coming up. But, you know, I think th this is, again, a question of are you really serving a greater purpose and a mission for a wide 
group. Now, it can be a narrow group in terms of veterans organizations support veterans, artist organizations support artists, but this this really should not be an organization that is supporting your friends and family who fit into that category. And if you do, again, you know, one of the questions on the 1023, you just have to explain it. You're going to have to answer why it is that that person is eligible. You're going to have to give information about how you review their eligibility. And this is just another question of making sure that you follow some kind of policy or guideline that ensures that you're not trying to benefit a person either in an excess benefit, you know, give them more than they otherwise would receive in the market, or that you're not somehow benefiting yourself or another director just by virtue of helping out someone that you know. So I think those are the the key takeaways in that. But it, but it's not a no. Organizations do do this. You know, we actually at uh, BCI, my nonprofit base camp for veterans, we've thought about can we find a way to fund individual veterans who will participate in our program and really sponsor them? But again, it's a specific question. How do you do that? They have to have already been admitted to the program before that even becomes a conversation. And we're not doing it yet for anyone who's listening. So the, yeah. And the, and in, in terms of like the grant and the class of people who can and apply for the grant, like the class of people has to be defined well enough that it could be a class of the general public it's not so narrowly defined that it's basically just like your inside group of friends and families, you know, that doesn't cut it. It really has to be the general public or members of the general public that fit within a particular class that has a need that can be met by the organization. Classic example, easy example would be scholarships. You know, everybody, everybody wants to have a scholarship fund. Well, scholarships go to, obviously they benefit specific students, but you can't have a scholarship fund that's so narrowly tailored that the general public isn't allowed to apply for your scholarships. It has to be open enough that the general public can benefit from that scholarship fund. Okay, another issue. Okay, I, I think that is probably sufficient on the application. Suffice it to say for anybody listening and who is unfamiliar with this uh, beautiful application, the Form 1023, it's much more detailed than we're letting on. And uh, it does take a lot of time and thought to go through it. Hopefully that's apparent from this conversation because we've just highlighted a couple of the uh, interesting little corners of it. But one of the other things then that kind of happens after formation is, and even really after submitting your application to the IRS, is then you have to rethink, well, what about where am I as a nonprofit going to be be sort of doing business as you know, to the extent that nonprofits do business, where am I going to be doing business in states in the country? And what do I have to do in those states? So what are what are some of the things that people should be aware of uh, from that per- particular perspective? Yeah, that's that's a great question, because, again, as Rachel mentioned in the beginning, it varies by state. Every state has a different rule. But there are some general takeaways that I think we can start with. There's most states have some kind of registration with a charities bureau of a sort. So you have to register and state that you are a, and most, I would say most applicants for 1023 do that. 1023 receive their confirmation that they are a charity and then they go to the state because that's one of the big questions. Have you been accepted by the IRS as a 501c3? But in New York and in Arizona, there is a registration process for just existing and being a charity and being listed as such. And actually in Arizona, there's a publication requirement. So that's something to be aware of. New York doesn't have something quite so formalized in public. And then there's also the question of applying for your tax exemption on a state level. So that comes, that's that's an initial application to make sure that you qualify. I think in in most states, that's that's something that's accepted. I did learn recently that in Arizona, you are not automatically exempt from sales tax or the privilege of doing business tax. That's a very specific request and, and not so easy to come by. So that's something to be aware of. I don't know. There might be many other states that have something similar. And then, you know, once you have your basic filings for that year, you know, for wherever you have incorporated, you can, you also have to think about where you're going to be soliciting funds or where you might be doing business elsewhere, because the state that you incorporate in, especially in today's time with all of websites and donations coming from everywhere, you may very well be at a point of soliciting from a state that you are not incorporated in. So again, home, homegrown example, we are lucky to have some really great supporters in Michigan. And as a result, we had to file a license to be allowed to solicit for funds in Michigan. 
we didn't and we didn't register with our charities bureau. We don't need a license to do business because we're not buying any goods or transacting in any way, but we do solicit there. So we had to submit that and every year you have to renew. So that brings up also the question of these initial filings are not just one one filing, especially in the state where you've incorporated, you then have your annual filing just the way your 990 goes into the IRS, you have a filing that goes into your respective state. So that's also something to be aware of. And if, again, you are operating in multiple states or soliciting for multiple states, you have to keep tabs on those renewal dates. And conveniently, they are not all the same date. They all depend on, yes, end of your year, calendar year could be, could be a good marker, but sometimes if you you submitted a license to solicit, then, you know, that happened in October because you just thought of it, then you have a filing every year in October. So it doesn't go with your other filing dates. So it's something to definitely keep tabs on as you're, as you're thinking about where you want to do business and where you want to solicit funds. That sounds awful, but also apparently just the rules of the road. So there's no getting around it. If you want to, you want to raise funds in multiple jurisdictions, you got to play by the rules and in multiple jurisdictions. Again, the lawyers ruin everything. That's, I think, maybe the theme of uh, this episode. All right, one uh, one final thing, and this would be the distinction between a so-called public charity and a so-called private foundation. Uh, and actually, there are two different kinds of private foundations. One's a non-operating private foundation. The other one is an operating private foundation. These are distinctions in the federal tax code. These are not necessarily distinctions in terms of how uh, the entity is organized for state law purposes, but it is uh, a distinction in the federal tax code. So I think we maybe should flesh that out. So uh, how about a public charity? What is that? So a public charity is really, it's the most popular, I would say, in a lot of ways in terms of starting a new organization, but that's that's really where you are soliciting donations from the public. It is very much true to its name. <laughs> and in, in some circumstances, although not always, there is supposed to be a higher tax deductibility giving limit. Um, and so that's very attractive, but at, because it's public, as we've gone over, there are rules that, that's, that control who can make decisions, what the structure should look like, the public as in the government really has a little bit more of a hands-on approach to, to handling what it is that the organization should do. So that's that's really uh, the point of public is that it's public dollars, public oversight, public activity, and in some ways a relinquishment of control because of that, people say. Although in, to some extent, I think that's a little bit of an outdated view of it, but another time, another day. Yeah. So at least a third or more than a third third or more of your uh, contributions need to come from the public or from from essentially public grants, you know, government grant money that that needs to make up um, the the budget, the revenue sources for your organization. So when you very first and the reason we're bringing this up is because when you're filing your 1023 and when you're setting up your documents, you want to have like in your mind what kind of charity am I going to be for federal tax purposes? So public charity being one of them. All right. How about a private foundation then? How is that different? Yeah, I think the just to piggyback on the that 33%, you know, that's something to think about in terms of as you grow, that your goals, your goal really has to be that you are soliciting from public sources. And I and I think sometimes that number seems daunting, but but it it's definitely it's manageable, I think, for even young organizations. But I, I do think it's something to keep in mind that this, this again, can't be your parents and friends are the only supporters. Although 67%, as they say, is not so bad either in terms of that. So it doesn't have to be as diverse. But private foundations. So private foundations are diff are very different in terms of control. That's not, you are not required to have a public support test. That, that That's not part of the deal. That's That can be from a very small group even if one individual can set it up with their money and their funds or a family. And as my, while you do have the the idea that you are going to ensure that you are not self-dealing, for example, the conflicts come up. It's not that you can just run rogue and give the money out to however you want, although there is some freedom with that. There there are rules also for the private foundations and you you do have some requirements in terms of distribute distributing the assets that you have to a cause, so to a charity. It still has to have a charitable purpose or goal. It's just you are outside the need public support test. 
you don't have as many rules about who can control the organization from the start in terms of who you look at as a director and officer, that can be your family. It can all be family. The only question is then making sure that you, without getting too detailed, avoid some of the penalties and taxes associated with self-dealing. So again, conflicts of interest come up, not distributing the 5%, the annual asset distribution of 5% each year. So there are some rules that can trip you up and that are still aimed at ensuring that this is a charity and that people are using it for a charitable purpose of a sort and that the tax dollars are deductible for a reason, but it's not quite as broad in terms of the types of controls and oversight that the government will will enforce on a public charity. Yeah, and that's a great uh, great explanation. And if it's if it's helpful for anybody, you can almost think of it from the perspective of a charity is either a public charity, so you meet this 33% plus test for public support, or you're a private foundation. That's it. You're one or the other. There are some nuances in here. There are a few little kind of special organizations that very uniquely fit into one or the other uh, category that we don't need to go into tonight. But if anybody's just sort of looking for uh, a handy general rule, that's the general rule. You're either a public charity or you're a private foundation. In fact, the definition of a private foundation is every charity that's not a public charity. That's the, the fairly technical uh, tax definition of a, of a private foundation. Then private foundations can, they do come in two different varieties. So the one that you're describing where you got to pay out this 5% amount every year is what's called a non-operating private foundation. That means it does not operate its own charitable programs. It is a grant-making organization. And there are tests to figure out whether you operate your own programs. But if you are a a private foundation that does operate your own programs, then you you kind of escape this this distribution test. I think under the theory that you're using your funds to operate your programs, therefore you don't need to be encouraged as a public policy to distribute money out to charities that actually run programs for charitable purposes. Uh, the the IRS does not necessarily want charities to just hoard money indefinitely and not use the money to fund their charitable purpose. So. That's a fairly broad statement, and there's many nuances in that. But it, as a very broad proposition, that's kind of the the public policy. Okay, well, and again, just to reframe that, the reason that I'm bringing that up is because when you go all the way back to the very beginning of this conversation, when Rachel was, was taking us through all of these boring steps that kill the excitement that somebody has about setting up their charity, you have to be thinking about this this issue at the very end of the day of what kind of charity am I going to be for federal tax purposes? And based on that, then certain types of language needs to appear in your original governing documents that Rachel is very lovingly describing at the beginning of this conversation. And then information from those documents and support for that purpose and how you're going to operate go into the 1023. So the whole process really supports at the end, the classification that you're going to have as either a public charity or a private foundation. So that's why we bring that up uh, at the very end. If anybody's like, this is a weird conversation. It seems like it's all mixed up. Um, <laughs> it's really not. All right. Well, I thank you both as usual for your your time uh, and talents and expertise on this. So we will leave it there and I will see both of you later. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me. Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.